Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In the last couple of episodes, we've been tracing the journey of Abraham, Israel's ancestor. Even though Abraham was very old and had no children, the Lord promises to make him into a great nation. Circumcision was introduced as a covenant reminder of this promise in chapter 17, which we explored in the last episode. We also noted that chapter 16 was the middle of this chiastic pyramid structure in Abraham's story. Chapters 15 and 17 both talk about covenant, and chapter 14 mirrors the passages we're looking today. Chapter 14 addressed a problem with Sodom and Gomorrah, and in these two chapters that we're going to look at today, Genesis 18 and 19, we'll see something similar pop up here. So let's pick up the story now from Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three sears of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I now worn out and my Lord is old? Shall I now have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 
The stitching together of various sources to produce this narrative intertwines Abraham's hospitality towards three visitors with this other story about the Lord encountering Abraham. By weaving these two incidents together, the narrative forces us to read them together as a whole cloth. Abraham lives up to the ancient Near East ideal of hospitality, earnestly caring and generously providing for his visitors every need. He did not engage in mimetic rivalry with them, but gives them the best of all his food and provisions. We have seen Abraham demonstrate this generosity throughout his journey. The Lord vows to imitate Abraham's hospitality, promising that the same time next year the Lord will return to him and Sarah will have a son. Just as Abraham has provided for the needs of his three visitors, so the Lord will now meet his need for a son. Having enjoyed Abraham's hospitality, the three men then go to investigate the town of Sodom. We will read about the outcome of this investigation later in the narrative. But for now, let's consider Sarah's reaction to the Lord's promise. While Abraham is attending to his three visitors, Sarah remains inside the tent. Perhaps this detail suggests that Sarah is not quite as hospitable and as enthusiastic about caring for these visitors as Abraham. Her lack of care and concern for the visitors is consistent with her mistreatment of Hagar, the foreign slave, in chapter 16. We are told that when Sarah overhears the Lord's promise to Abraham, she laughs or cries out within herself. The word used to describe this action is sa'ak, and it becomes a key word throughout the remainder of the chapter. In fact, as we'll see in a later chapter when the child is born, Yitzhak, which comes from this word sa'ak, becomes the child's name. Yitzhak, which becomes anglicized into the name Isaac. In verse 20, the same word is used to describe the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sarah groans within herself as she experiences pain and shame because she has no descendants. Because she doesn't believe the Lord's promise, it seems empty, it seems void to her, and it just seems to cause her more hurt and pain. Apparently, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah have inflicted a similar pain and shame upon the people around them because of their grave sin. The Lord decides to visit Sodom and Gomorrah to make an assessment of this situation. In this narrative and the chapter that follows, the Lord hears the outcry of the oppressed and disenfranchised. In verse 19, the Lord says that he has chosen Abraham, but the word used here is not so much the word chosen, but yada, which in Hebrew means to know. This same word is used to describe the Lord's cognition regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as the Lord has known Abraham, so he will know whether the outcry regarding Sodom and Gomorrah is as bad as the report against them suggests. Furthermore, the Lord promises to remedy Sarah's outcry, just as he will address the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah in the next chapter. In other words, the Lord is not satisfied with pain and distress, but answers the outcry of those who are suffering. Let's read on now from verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. 
Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he again said to them, Suppose there are forty there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose there are twenty found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak again but just one more time. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Knowing that the Lord is going to do something about the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham bargains with the Lord over the city's future. Because of course, as we'll find out later, he has a stake in it. Lot lives in Sodom. His nephew Lot is there, this righteous person and his family, and he's concerned that his nephew and his family Lot will be swept away with this city of destruction. You see, here's the city, which as we'll see in the next chapter is plagued by mimetic rivalry, the very lifestyle which Abraham is seeking to renounce. Yet Abraham does not condemn the city for their sin, but rather intercedes with God on their behalf. So you see, Abraham is not just about his tribe and his people, but rather he is supposed to be a blessing to all the peoples round about him. Having left behind a world steeped in tribal rivalry, Abraham seeks a new world which denounces mimetic rivalry and appreciates the unity of all peoples. To this end, Abraham does not view Sodom and Gomorrah as a rival city, but as just another group of fellow humans standing before the Lord. Through his actions in this passage, Abraham casts a vision for a brave new world in which all people live and care for one another as one. In the following narrative, the city of Sodom lives in a very different way. Let's read on now from chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, 
both young and old, all the people, to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after them and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn with us, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with him than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has come great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were married to his daughters, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be just joking. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are with you, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and the Lord being merciful to them. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there, it is just a little one, and my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overflow that city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities that grew on the land. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the valley of... And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when the Lord destroyed the cities of the valley... God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. 
So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I laid last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go and lie with him, that we may preserve the offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a child and his name was Moab. He is the father of all the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Amadites to this day. Notice this chapter begins with a similar scenario to Abraham's encounter with his three visitors in the previous chapter. In chapter 18, Abraham is visited by three men while sitting at the entrance to his tent. He bows down before them. He urges them to come and accept his hospitality. Now in chapter 19, Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom when he is visited by two angels. And he bows down before them. He urges them strongly to accept his hospitality. But why are the men who visit Abraham in chapter 18 now referred to as angels in chapter 19. The narrative flow suggests that these angels are the same people who leave Abraham to investigate Sodom, and somehow the Lord's involved in that too. Also, why are there now only two men and not three? I think the best explanation of these differences is that these narratives were originally independent stories which have now been woven together to produce a cohesive narrative. The reluctance of the editors and redactors to smooth out the narrative by altering whether these visitors were men or angels or how many of them there were shows how highly regarded and deeply ingrained these stories were in early Israelite oral tradition. Despite the differences in these two narratives, they've been juxtaposed to show the contrast between Abraham's non-mimetic lifestyle and the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Unlike Abraham, who directs no mimetic rivalry towards his guests, the people of Sodom seek to vent their collective rivalries upon Lot's visitors. Aware of the danger these angels would face spending the night unprotected in the public square, Lot forcefully urges his visitors to accept his hospitality. In this way, Lot attempts to protect his two visitors from being scapegoated by the men of Sodom. Mimetic rivalry in Sodom has reached fever pitch, resulting in a mimetic crisis. The narrative contains some clues that a mimetic crisis is taking place. For example, the confusion of a mimetic crisis is depicted by the narrative's nocturnal setting and the angels blinding of their would-be attackers. The men of Sodom are blind to their violence and the mimetic forces which drive them. They attempt to vent their violent impulses upon the two angels because they are set apart as foreigners. So the people assume that they must be the cause of the crisis. But when Lot attempts to stall their efforts, the men threaten to turn their violence towards him, also identifying him as a foreigner who is attempting to become a judge over them. 
The fickle nature of the crowd's persecution is quite typical of the scapegoat mechanism. The crowd needs to persecute a victim, but the victim's identity is not so important. Notice what Lot does to save his own skin and that of his visitors. Lot offers his two virgin daughters as scapegoats instead of his visitors. Why? Because he knows the mimetic violence demands a scapegoat, and peace cannot be established until the scapegoat has been persecuted. Lucky for Lot's daughters, the angels halt their attackers in their tracks. Failing to find a scapegoat, the community is destroyed by mimetic rivalry, in this case depicted as fire coming down from the sky. I mentioned earlier the importance of this word no is to this story and the story of chapter 18. The people say they want to know Lot's visitors, which is of course a euphemism for rape. In response, Lot offers the men of Sodom his two daughters, which have not known a man. Yet in the preceding chapter, the term to know is used differently. According to Genesis chapter 18 verse 9, the Lord knows Abraham and is going down to Sodom so that he might know if the outcry against it is accurate. The legitimacy of the outcry against Sodom is confirmed in chapter 19 when the men of Sodom seek to know Lot's visitors. Ironically, later in the chapter, Lot does not know when his daughters rape him because they get him drunk beforehand. So there are different types of knowing experienced by different people in different relationships. Abraham is known by the Lord, which leads to his blessing and prosperity. This is what it means to worship the God who renounces mimetic violence. In contrast, the Lord knows about the mimetic violence of Sodom, which drives them to know Lot's visitors and ultimately culminates in their self-destruction. In short, there are two ways to live. The way of mimetic rivalry, which breeds death and destruction, and the way of Abraham, who lives a blessed life as he avoids mimetic conflict with others. The last story at the end of the chapter about incest between Lot and his daughters serves as an origin story for Israel's enemies, the Moabites and the Ammonites. These people groups will oppose Israel's entry into Canaan after the exodus in the book of Numbers. The origin story in Genesis 19 addresses the question of why are these people such jerks? The answer posed by this story is something like, well, what do you expect? These nations were conceived incestuously in the midst of mimetic rivalry. Of course they're going to be monsters. This line of thinking may also serve to justify Israel's military attack of these people groups in the book of Numbers. Once we dehumanize our enemies, identifying them as monsters, it becomes easier for us to attack and slaughter them. We saw a similar rhetoric built into the narrative of Genesis 9 when Noah curses Canaan because of Ham's misconduct. These stories frame Israel's enemies as the monstrous other, and in so doing, aim to justify Israel's persecution of these peoples in the Canaanite conquest. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.